the performance of the Republic in that war against another Republic was actually uh, an encouraging one in the sense that it sort of proved the American Republic's institutions were up to the challenge of a significant and very far-flung conflict. Today we're going to speak to our interim arts and sciences dean, Dr. Alexander Marion. Alex is going to share with us his contributions to a book that was recently published on James K. Polk. So why Polk? So why Polk? Uh, Of all the one-term presidents in American history, with the possible exception, I guess, of Donald Trump, uh, James Polk uh, is sort of one of the the most consequential presidents who to serve one term. And I think most people are at least vaguely familiar with Polk as the president during the Mexican-American War right. uh, in the 1840s. And his role on that is, is sort of endlessly debated by presidents. But every, basically every time the United States ends up at war, uh, there's always a reexamination of Polk. In the, in the sort of aftermath of 9-11, there were many different Polk books that emerged. Um, sort of comparing uh, George W. Bush to Polk. And my own uh, sort of dive into this publication for Polk was sort of brought about by the the end of a what most people, I think, would consider a, a, a somewhat boring scholarly project, basically right. taking every letter that ever came into Polk and every letter that <laughs> Polk ever wrote to somebody else and publishing them in a series of volumes as his correspondence, uh, which mostly lives in libraries around the country that people can go and and check out and look at if they're at all interested in Mm -hmm. that. So uh, a conference came together, people presented on Polk. My own contribution was on Polk's uh, conduct of the presidency as commander-in-chief and where his ideas about the presidency and its war powers came from and, and sort of how his conduct looked and how we should think about it uh, historically. And I'm sure we could talk a little bit more about that if you wish. But so this conference came to sort of celebrate the end of this publication project on the correspondence of Polk. And and so people presented on every facet of the man's life, as you might imagine, from Mm. uh, the fact that uh, he was a one-term president, uh, and unusual in the sense that he promised to be a one-term president, I was and, about to uh, say most one-termers are not by choice, right? It, exactly. It, <laughs> they, it's sort of forced on them right. uh, by circumstances. Whereas Polk did not seek the the nomination of the Democratic Party to to be the nominee by uh, prearranged promise from four years earlier, and uh, and then retired, and then almost immediately died. So his political career uh, ended a couple of months after the presidency uh, actually ceased, which again puts him in a sort of weird category of presidents. Uh, right. uh, usually there's at least some extended amount of time that they have to observe right. uh, their successor before they uh, they pass away. So the the question that you gave me, why Polk? A series oh, so of so How did you get into it? Then, bring like? me around to Polk. Well, Polk was part of my dissertation research, which was an extended study on the question of the problem posed by war uh, in Republican thought. Republican, is it mean? Republican government? Or? Republican government, okay. right, right. You know, uh, are republics um, strong or capable of fighting wars? Or are they historically problematic with warfare? For those who founded the United States and put together its constitution and debated all those things in the, the late 18th century, the verdict was pretty pretty negative on the Republican form of government when it came to war. Um, they were perceived as uniquely weak, Uh, forms of government when it came to fighting war. And conversely, the other problem was in order to sort of make up for those weaknesses, uh, republics often overdid it 
and uh, right. engaged in, in activities or institutions that were too powerful to uh, continue their existence for very long, either uh, during the course of a war or soon thereafter. So right. that's, uh, that's how I, I got deeper into the Polk corpus, as it were, uh, in terms of his own writings and writings about Polk. And then uh, when this conference came up at the end of the publication of Polk's correspondence, I, I sort of said, well, I did write about that. Maybe I should, maybe I have something to say about Polk. And fortunately, the, uh, the people at the conference thought that I, I did have something to say about him. And uh, it's resulted in this uh, chapter in this book. So I, I want to point out too, though, like I've seen him more than once listed as actually probably one of the greater presidents that we've ever had because... You know, he laid out what he wanted to do. He accomplished these things. By the way, for people in Texas, it's kind of important because sure. he oversaw the annexation of Texas. But, I mean, I've seen that before where he's often ranked as, like, one of the best that we've had because he was able to achieve exactly what he wanted to. And he didn't hang on to power. He's like, I got this done. Now I'm going to leave. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so you're right. Uh, when they when they rank or when they poll historians, and that's usually where you see right. these rankings, uh, you know, who are, the, who are the greatest presidents? This is supposed and to be People love of, talking about the worst, but they don't ever look at the best. <laughs> right. So. Uh, well, the historians themselves, I think they, they poll historians with the idea that historians are very dispassionate and they, right. will, they will rank greatness without a, a kind of a moral judgment. They're sort of looking at consequential and, uh, right. and that's sort of people who, you know, use the office effectively right. and, and achieve and, and, their and policy. And what they aims. set out to achieve and what they accomplished. And Polk, I think, of the one-term presidents ranks uh, extraordinarily high. We sort of think of great presidents in terms of Lincoln and Washington and FDR and these sorts of long-term presidential characters. And Polk, uh, I would say, among those those really highly ranked presidents, right. certainly the most controversial of the uh, of those people who rank highly. I think most of the historians that pick Polk are conflicted about it. His reputation certainly has not. I mean, even in the immediate aftermath of his pres- aftermath of his presidency, Polk was um, was a very controversial and divisive character, as we would like to say today. Uh, problematic, uh, and uh, that has not ceased um, in the aftermath. I don't really think there's a period where Polk had a, a kind of a heyday where people were very positive about. Right. Uh, his presidency. Uh, I mean, very famously, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, himself a two-term president, reflecting on his career, wrote very negatively about Polk and the Mexican War in which he participated in the 1840s and did not remember that aspect of his presidency all that well. It's funny that you mentioned Texas as sort of being a place that might have a, a fonder memory of Polk in terms of annexation right. to the republic, of course, Polk had almost nothing to do with that, um, and that wasn't even one. <laughs> well, of Polk. And it was talked about before he became president. Like it was, it, it was been, John Tyler yeah, who actually been, yeah, it was, should it'd get been a long-term goal. Actually, right, for, the credit for that uh, among Texans, if Texans were looking for someone to sort of hang credit on, <laughs> would be President Tyler, even more forgotten, a slightly less than one-term president <laughs> in American history, who's not ranked highly, I might add, by historians uh, as consequential or anything else. And Polk's agenda, I mean, the, the sort of mythical story for Polk is that he sort of had his secretary of the Navy in, in, um, in the, the, basically the executive office of the White House and sort of slapped his knee and, and basically laid out four items on his agenda. And Texas wasn't one of them, because from Polk's vantage point as president, Texas had already sort of been solved. Polk, I think, seems genuinely confused by the by Mexico's reaction to the annexation of Texas in terms of it. You know, it had been eight years since the end of the Texas Revolution that Mexico had failed to reconquer Texas uh, in that time period, and th- there was didn't seem to be any prospect of successfully doing that anytime soon. 
under the current Mexican government. So from Polk's perspective, sort of Mexico was a sort of done old news type thing. His, he was more concerned uh, when it came to Mexico and this created a problem with the Mexican Republic of buying additional territory from Mexico to kind of smooth over. You mean the Southwest United States? <laughs> yes, um, which he wanted to pay a lot of money for, and he thought uh, Mexico would go for it because it would basically wipe out their entire national debt and take uh, what was, uh, from Polk's perspective, a, a fairly pressing problem of a, a giant amount of territory with very few Mexican citizens living in it uh, that could be easily... Uh, attacked and mm-hmm. taken away by anyone. Mm-hmm. We think the United States, obviously, is the is the right reference point there because that's exactly what happened. But Polk would, would sort of was pointing at, at Great Britain as the uh, the obvious sort of predatory superpower on the world stage. Right. And they'd made be, attempts not too long before this. That could apparently. easily uh, seize the California coast, for right. instance. So basically his pitch to Mexico was, here's, I'll wipe out your whole national debt. You'll get something for this territory. And you don't have to spend defense resources to, protecting this land. Right. And, and Mexico, uh, up until that point, had not had um, something that I think Americans pretty much take for granted even today, which was uh, the successful sort of transition of power from uh, one duly elected leader to another duly elected leader. Mexico had had a republic since 1824. By 1845, that still had not happened. And that brings us back to, to, to why the problem of war is such an interesting one, the, the sort of untested and unverified uh, kind of nature of Republican government uh, that historically it seemed to be kind of a big failure. Um, and the, the sort of Mexican example at that time was sort of proving that historical point, uh, at least in the minds of monarchists and, mm-hmm. and votaries of, of monarchy. So if you don't mind, um, let's unpack some of this problematic. Sure nature of his history because i know that it's there and i mm-hmm. and when you talk about those polling those historians they always make a point to mention it <laughs> to say uh, polk polk is is very great in the sense that he got a lot done but exactly. i don't i don't think he's that good no personally uh well i, I mean all of it i think essentially is uh, relates to the mexican war uh and how polk steered the republic into war with mexico and i think the the standard historical account is is a fairly uh, sort of clear endorsement of what at the time were um, Whig Party critiques of Polk. Uh, Polk, of course, was a Democrat. The opposite party at that time was the Whig Party. Abraham Lincoln would very famously uh, be a congressman in the late Polk administration from Illinois and would essentially accuse Polk of lying, Mm -hmm. uh, that Polk uh, had uh, misled a number of people, including people in his own party, about what his intentions were with Mexico and uh, what exactly he was doing as president and commander-in-chief to sort of put the army of the United States as close to the Mexican army as he could with uh, the sort of flimsy pretext that the Rio Grande was the legitimate boundary now between the United States and Mexico, uh, basically hoping that the Mexican government would precipitate uh, some sort of excuse um, to go to war and uh, then be able to seize the Western territory that today makes up California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, <laughs> Colorado, bits and yes, pieces of, half of, of North Idaho. America, practically. Yes, um, <laughs> and, and so that basically is the the main the major 
uh, element of critique of Polk. And of course, this is a part of a larger critique of, of so-called manifest destiny at the mm-hmm. time, the, this idea uh, that Americans were entitled to uh, the western half of the continent and all that goes with it, right? Uh, exploitation of resources, uh, wars with uh, Indians and Native Americans and things like that. For me, looking at this, it, uh, the Mexican War, at least served for Polk and for people in Polk's party, and even for some Whigs, uh, in the aftermath, when, when sort of the heat of the partisan moment was over, the performance of the Republic in that war against another Republic was actually a, an encouraging one in the sense that it sort of proved the American Republic's institutions were up to the challenge of a significant and very far-flung conflict. I mean, again, if we sort of think about this in the context of 1845, uh, which all of us remember well, I'm sure, um, <laughs> This is a period where there really isn't any telegraph that connects uh, the distances that we're talking about here, and we're talking about the sort of Rio Grande Valley of Texas, which I think many of us are probably familiar with, and Washington, D.C. That is a sort of a tremendous amount of distance. And you not think an about, easy distance either. I mean, a couple mountain ranges distance. you got to pass through. And I mean, even the fast way, of course, is, is sailing, and that is a, a perilous uh, voyage on its own. People still were being lost in shipwrecks and things like that fairly routinely. And raided routinely. Um, and so, you know, it took weeks and weeks to get messages back and forth. So we're, we're still in a very pre-modern moment in, in the 1840s. And to be conducting large amounts of supplies, large amounts of men that were recruited basically at the moment of the declaration of war mm-hmm. in 1845, um, and to do so under sort of intense international scrutiny. There was a lot of international observation of the Mexican War. Um, And to have it all sort of come off relatively easily uh, from the vantage point of just sort of what were the objectives and were they achieved and was there any kind of major long-term stalemate? As I say, it didn't turn into a prolonged engagement that... Well, it's funny. Uh, from our vantage point, uh, we're sort of dealing with, say, the Afghanistan conflict. We would consider the Mexican War to be a, a shockingly quick affair, right? Two years, and it's essentially all over and done with. From Polk's vantage point, ironically enough, we're sort of thinking of a guy who promised to only be president for four years. It lasted an interminable amount of time. Uh, he sort of imagined that as, basically as soon as war was declared, Mexico would sort of come to its senses, realize this was a you know, catastrophic mistake, and sue for peace. And then basically Polk could say, well, I was going to you know, wipe out your whole debt, and now I'll still give you money, but you know, let's get to the deal I wanted to get to um, originally. And um, every, every sort of week that passed during that two years where that didn't happen, you sort of get a sense of Polk becoming more and more flabbergasted as to why. And sort of a lot of his presidency has that kind of flavor. Polk was a man who had sort of reasoned himself to what he thought were fairly obvious conclusions. And it's an interesting facet of the man's character. And and the only reason I know that, it's not like I've had conversations with Polk, uh, you know, with the Ouija board or anything. Polk is one of these fascinating characters who kept a diary. And he hadn't been doing it his whole life. He decided uh, about August, uh, so roughly six months into into the first year he was president, 
to begin keeping a diary, and mostly because of an argument that he had had with one of his cabinet officials. Uh, James Buchanan, who later became president right. of the United States, was Polk's secretary of state. Who, by the way, usually lists as one of the worst presidents. <laughs> yes, uh, it's a good way to <laughs> Ironically. Yes, yes, uh, Buchanan uh, routinely uh, listed as dead last. But it, not because of anything that Polk did. It was just <laughs> not because of Not because of this. Because of the historical moment. Right, guess, right, exactly. But Buchanan was already a problem for President Polk. Uh, he found Buchanan to be a, a very annoying, two-faced character uh, who was constantly sort of taking positions in, in cabinet meetings and then later sort of taking the opposite position and claiming he'd never taken the original position. So Polk began keeping a diary basically to keep track of what was going on so that next time this were to occur, he could go back and say, aha, I wrote it down. You, you did say this other thing back on, you know, September 3rd. For historians, especially because Polk died so quickly after the presidency, we have this sort of unvarnished day-by-day account of the presidency in the middle of the 19th century, and it's a fascinating um, voyage, uh, even without the Mexican War, which obviously mm-hmm. provides its own right. uh, sort of really interesting historical moment to sort of examine, just sort of seeing the day-to-day operations of the White House, the presidency. I think Polk was uh, was um, second to last on the slaveholding presidents list, so uh, to have a, a sort of a Tennessean uh, and his van- sort of take on this sort of opening sectional divide that was mm-hmm. sort of uh, becoming apparent by the end of his presidency. And, uh, again, another moment where Polk could sort of reason himself to various positions and then couldn't figure out why everyone else was, was doing it wrong at the end, both north and south. He sort of mm-hmm. had an interesting position on that uh, by the time we get to the end uh, of his time in office. But, yeah, that, that diary cr- makes Polk, I think— a lot more accessible to the historians who who do the poll rankings than than a lot of his uh, contemporary colleagues in the. And is it because office. maybe he doesn't have a memoir that conflicts some of this diary and or no? Well, it's yeah. funny the idea of the memoir. No one really does that until you get to Grant. I was like Grant. Um, was a big... Of all those presidents, we don't really ever see it, and we only see a diary with John Quincy Adams. We don't really get to see a sort of an ongoing day to day diaristic account of a a life that is both public and, of course, private and has these consequential elements to it. And so uh, it's interesting. Uh, You see this uh, in all fields of history I've found over the the years, but uh, in presidential history is no exception. Those presidents that did keep diaries tend to have a much better reputation amongst historians. (laughs) Because you know why they did what they did. Thank you. You left me all this material to work with. And even if I don't like you, I get all these insights and I get all these great little stories and vignettes. And, of course, Polk's diary is full of these great little stories about – uh, being president and in uh, his own frustrations with the office, and some of them are really, really familiar, and some of them, some of them aren't. So, what were your, your what was your contribution to the book specifically related to? So, my uh, my chapter in this book was uh, it, again exploring Polk uh, as commander in chief, and more specifically, sort of how to situate Polk's approach to the presidency. And uh, this will seem. I know in a conversation about Polk, it's, it's, it's humorous to say this, this part will seem esoteric, uh, the whole thing might seem that way. But uh, among historians, there has been a long sort of almost a, just an accepted truism that Polk is basically kind of a, in the whole Mexican War, is kind of a, a rehearsal for the Civil War. That what we see in Polk is a, is a very kind of modern, pragmatic, non-ideological, sort of hard-nosed kind of guy 
you know, playing real politic and, you know, with Britain, with Mexico, and mm-hmm. sort of willing to use war to achieve his ends, etc. He's kind of a Machiavellian character a lot of the ways you sort of see Polk described. And it, again, it confused him while he was alive because I don't really think he saw himself that way. And I, he certainly didn't see himself as a, as a sort of deliberate lying character, mm-hmm. at least from what I've ever been able to conclude about him from his own, his own documents, which, of course, could be self-serving. But uh, so my my contention was that one way to to maybe better understand Polk is to actually look at Polk in light of the previous war that right. the United States had fought, which seems so different than the Mexican War. The, the, the War of 1812 that had been overseen by what could only be described as a totally anti-Polk character, right? James Madison had been president of the United States during the War of 1812, a sort of esteemed founding father character, father of the Bill of Rights, father of the U.S. Constitution. You know, Madison seems uh, even more obviously remote than Polk. It comes from a different era, seems uniquely unfit for the presidency. We sort of imagine the chief executive as this kind of bold man of action and James Madison of course is 54 he seems very bookish and intellectual it does not seem like the bold man of action that that we sort of imagine belongs in the presidency um especially when you sort of put him next to his two his predecessor and his immediate successor right Thomas Jefferson is this sort of very tall lanky character uh, he might not be bold but he sort of has the bearing of a of a sort of executive character and James Monroe was a revolutionary war veteran uh, wounded uh, at the Battle of Princeton uh, mm-hmm. you know on that uh, December foray that Washington made across the Delaware sort of seems you know uh, the sort of military bearing that kind of often, the trends we still see today more yes yeah, yeah exactly and and that 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 mattered in that period too perhaps in different ways than it does now so Madison seems curiously out of place as president during a war the idea of comparing Madison to, to Polk again seems counterintuitive in a lot of ways I suggested in my chapter that's actually the more illuminating comparison that not looking forward to Lincoln but actually looking back to Madison helps explain a lot Madison himself was criticized in many of the same ways that Polk was by his political opposition. They both kind of saw themselves politically as occupying the same space. Polk's party, the Democratic Party, uh, sort of hearkened its, uh, in its own imagination itself as the sort of true guarantors of the Jeffersonian promise and, the, and sort of talked of themselves as the true party of Jefferson and Madison and these people. Polk routinely criticized the Whigs as essentially the Federalist Party from uh, the era of the War of 1812, that he would, even in the 1830s, still refer to the, to the Whigs as the, actual, as the Federal Party, accuse, basically uh, reminding everyone that the Federalists had been traitors during the War of 1812 mm-hmm. as, far as, as far as the Democrats were concerned. And so Polk is, much like Jackson was, uh, one of these people just constantly trying to touch base with that older legacy, that older tradition, in many ways mimicked Madison as mm-hmm. opposed to Lincoln. And and one of the things that I tried to bring out in the chapter is that part of the reason why that was so easy and logical for Polk and his contemporaries to sort of see themselves that way, at least among the Democrats, was that a lot of those Madisonian characters were still around in Washington. Madison's widow still lived. Uh, I mean, she basically lived across the street from Polk's uh, White House. They they socialized 
fairly frequently, went to Mount Vernon together, kind of famously on a, on a trip, took, took the widow Madison out to, to Mount Vernon. One of uh, Madison's late cabinet members served in the Polk administration as ambassador to France, sort of reported back to President Polk that the, the French king was uh, kind of following very closely the events of the Mexican War and was kind of impressed by how things were going provided Polk some reassurance that that how he was conducting the office sort of would have been approved of by President Madison, that he mm-hmm. was sort of respecting the boundaries okay. of the office, its limitations. Well, in other words, he was looking back, though. So. Exactly. There's quite a few leftover characters from the War of 1812 in, this, uh, in the Mexican period as well. I mean, a couple of the, the major military characters uh, of the that emerged from the War of 1812 are still in Washington. They're still serving in important capacities. Winfield Scott is the most right. obvious, uh, but Zachary Taylor had fought in the War of 1812. The, the sort of quartermaster general had been a, a major War of 1812 figure as well and was still there in Washington causing Polk all sorts of headaches. <laughs> Uh, again, part of the reason why we sort of are, are tempted to make that leap is that we're just sort of... Uh, we're just tempted by time and, and the sort of well, connection. We're looking we sort at of it from a more holistic approach as opposed to well, just seems what to they make, were thinking of in the moment. It seems to make sense, right? The, right. the, the mid-1840s, much closer to 1861 right. than, than 1812. But the, the world of eight, the mid-1840s and 1812 actually you share a lot. Mm-hmm. So while there are railroads beginning to emerge, we still don't have the telegraph. While there are steamships, they're not as prevalent as we would think in the mid-1840s, and they're still kind of, uh, in some ways, untested. Occasionally blow up and, and burn down. That will continue to be a problem in right. the 1850s and 60s, actually. So we sort of think of that whole period between uh, the, the War of 1812 and the Civil War as being this one sort of epic transition, but so much of it actually occurred in the 1850s, and mm-hmm. I think that's something that is kind of lost when we, we sort of think about it, how much of it is accelerated in that one decade. And some of the historians about the Civil War have sort of noted that, that if the Civil War had happened in 1850 as opposed to 1860, which seemed a real possibility at right. the time, it might have been a very different Civil War in a lot of ways, uh, that the, the North was not as interconnected uh, in 1850 as it was in 1860s. Could it have marshaled all these additional resources to sort of concentrate its own natural advantages against the South as effectively at that point as it did 10 years later, right? right? There are questions like that that lots of uh, particularly military historians like to tease out. Well, looking forward, you know, at the Civil War, because everything that, you know, leads up to something has some role in it. Yeah. I don't want to say anything about Polk's role in things because he, you know, he didn't have a role, but he was definitely in that lineage from, you know, the moment the Constitution was approved with sure. slavery intact to when the Civil War started. So what do you think if he had any kind of, was there any impact from him leading up to those events that, you know, to Harper's Ferry, to Bleeding Kansas, to, you know, all these little separate incidences that coagulated into the conditions that started the Civil War. Did he contribute at all to that, you think? Or did he prolong it? Or did he just play his part and it was just, you know, inevitable? I think, again, Polk's contemporaries and certainly historians ever since would would answer a kind of unequivocal yes. Uh, Of course, he contributed to it. I I, I think it's Emerson that sort of likened the the acquisition of Texas and the territory from Mexico is, is uh, he likened it, I think, to swallowing arsenic. Um, that great, we've we've gotten it. it. It'll it'll be the death of us. And right. and a lot of people f- foresaw that issue as it was happening. And of course, it emerged right away as as sort of one of the first appropriation bills for the war. 
included the the famous Wilmot proviso, right? This this argument about, well, if we get any territory, let's make it off limits to slavery, which Polk thought was totally beside the point. He couldn't figure out why this had come up. It was his own party that had proposed this thing, and right. it, that angered him even more, but he was just befuddled by it. He sort of said, what does slavery have to do with anything? Why are we talking about that, right? And sort of didn't get why that would be an, an issue. Well, he's like, that, apparently an extremely focused guy. Like, he really just... <laughs> like I said, Polk would reason himself to things and then be confused as to why everyone else hadn't followed along at some point. But he was a very taciturn sort of guy. He didn't talk a lot and he didn't write anything for public consumption, really. So it's sort of, in a lot of ways, again, the the historical trend has been to see Polk as kind of the first modern president, presaging kind of, uh, you know, some of the Lincolnian developments we'd see. But in a lot of ways, he's not. He's mm-hmm. he's a very he's a president that would not fit in our era uh, in any real sense. He was, again... Uh, kind of tight-lipped, not a not a great public speaker by any any stretch of the word, not especially bookish in any sense, not really an intellectual, but but yeah, the sort of sort of guy who you know, I mean, we can make fun of uh, Polk uh, in all sorts of ways. Mullet, I'm not sure would work <laughs> in the modern presidential environment, and Polk certainly is, is sporting a mullet there in one of the photos we have of him. But yeah, not really uh, the sort of person we imagine would occupy the, the office today. But back to the question you asked about, you know, what role does Polk play in contributing to all that? I mean, again, sort of acquiring additional territory after the addition of Texas leads to a very, very prolonged debate over the status of slavery in all of these places. The discovery of gold was something that had eluded Mexican administrators for uh, several hundred years. And, you know, that that drives tens of thousands of people to go live uh, immediately in California, which, of course drives them to want to want to apply for statehood right away and then of course you know in the the wake of the Missouri crisis every uh, application for statehood becomes wrought with the question of well is this a slave state or is it is it not a slave state and again from Polk's perspective as that starts to emerge in 1848 is just confusion you know slavery doesn't exist there why would we argue about it right. you know we're talking about a th- the theoretical possibility of these things you know eventually he'll come down on the side of just taking the missouri compromise line and drawing it to the ocean and being done with it as the only peaceable solution that makes any sense and ultimately what ends up happening is another slaveholder the last slaveholding president ironically enough a, a hero of the mexican war but a, a whig not a democrat zachary taylor will actually be the one that that advocates for what is essentially the free state position, which is California, it doesn't have slavery, it has enough people, it already drew up a constitution that has no slavery, end of story. So Polk's role in, in getting us to the Civil War is extremely important, but again, it's one of these things where we sort of, when you look back, you sort of say, well, that's it's kind of obvious it'll get you there. It wasn't obvious to Polk. Polk mm-hmm. did not see it as, a, as an obvious thing that gets you from one to the other. Now, if he'd lived through the rest of the 1850s, it would have been interesting to see how he would have interpreted subsequent events as uh, mostly his own party dominated the politics uh, at the national level uh, through that decade. President Pierce and President Buchanan attempted to come up with their own solutions to stave off uh, what, what seems to us the inevitable. Again, Polk, uh, obviously, I don't think saw it as inevitable and, again, was really confused in a lot of ways by it. And, again, we, we sort of look on that and are sort of wondering how he's confused. We're confused when we look at the antebellum period, and so are historians, for that matter, when they sort of look back on it and say, well, you're talking about a republic in which, you know, 2 million, then 3 million, and then ultimately 4 million people are enslaved. How is that not the major issue for everybody? I think Polk's perspective on slavery is interesting, but I think... Uh, 
for his generation of Southerners, it was sort of a, well, this is a normal part of life, yeah. and why would it be anybody's business anyway? Um, and it, from our vantage point, it's such a, it's such a, a both a foreign and a, a reprehensible view that seems so unfeeling, so counterintuitive, so disconnected from any yeah. any real moral sense that it's hard for us to have any uh, empathy or, or understanding for a person like that. And I think that, you know, that can uh, make writing about Polk complicated, All right. put it that way. Can we close out on one comment about the importance of presidential archives and documents, especially given the moment? Oh. There's a huge debate about, you know, what what belongs to the president and what belongs to the people once they leave office. Well, that's that's fascinating because that, that's a relatively new thing um, historically. Uh, there was no expectation in this period that uh, aside from the, the duplicate documents that were, I mean, this is how this was dealt with in the past. The, mm-hmm. the clerks at most of these government departments made duplicates of the letters and things that were sent. So there'd be some record on hand for, didn't we send a letter to that guy in, yeah. in, in Leipzig about something? Dig it up. Let's find out what we yeah. said. Um, and that would stay at the Department of State or the Department of War, wherever it was from. Because those were official communiques. Right. But people made off with all sorts of official papers or what we would consider to be official papers today. And, of course, none of the secrets or or things like that, uh, say of Polk's diary, for mm-hmm. instance, could compare to what is being reported on right. in terms of uh, the same nuclear, <laughs> nuclear uh, secrets and yes. things like that. But, yeah, no, uh, documents are, are incredibly important to trying to reconstruct what was happening. And I know that's what most of the presidential library projects right. are, are sort of tasked with doing is sort of – not only preserving all those documents and sort of, but also, as the years pass, letting more and more of them out to the scholarly community or mm-hmm. the general public to sort of come and and look at what was the government up to. And, you, what and these people- would you say that he's like a good sort of starting point from that, where they felt like this is what you can benefit from somebody knowing what they were thinking at the time. I think historians definitely view Polk as is one of these. Uh, 19th century characters who we get to know a lot more about because of his diary keeping. Again, not an official right. act. This was a sort of this is the the great thing about Polk's diary. It's kind of a vignette into Polk's into the politics of the Democratic Party in the mid 19th century, but also Polk's frustrations with his own cabinet, which we don't often see in presidential <laughs> politics today. The cabinet in the 19th century does not function like the cabinet no. Joe Biden has, no, no. where he sort of picks his political allies and friends, but couldn't easily fire any of them if he had to, if they became an insubordinate jerk, you know, if they were just sort of operating clearly behind his back or lying to his face and then <laughs> doing some other thing in on the side. Presidents in this period don't feel that kind of freedom to just simply dismiss, you know, a Secretary of State Buchanan, who never gets dismissed. Polk will never end up firing him. Although I think he'll be insanely tempted Probably to. Probably regrets it, A couple sure. of points, for <laughs> sure. But uh, no, felt he couldn't do that, that he would alienate a big chunk of the party, hmm. that Buchanan would turn all of his friends in Congress against him. <laughs> uh, even though they would all be Democrats, they would all turn against him and vote with the Whigs just to, just to stick it to Polk. So there's, there's the diary is a sort of non-official excellent thing that happened right we sort of historians should be more grateful i think to buchanan for that than they are to polk because that's why he started doing it what you get from the the correspondence 
is it's more of a mixed bag because so much of the correspondence is in an official capacity. I, as the president, am mm. writing to you as some other official, and here's what I'll say. And I, I know you could end up publishing this in a newspaper, so I'm going to you know, keep my, my words to myself. Now, the letters to personal friends and confidential acquaintances, those can be very revealing. Problem with those is they would never be copied, and you only get them if the or the correspondent kept them. So uh, you could definitely understand why the National Archives becomes very, very concerned whenever a document vanishes, because I think a lot of historians have been uh, complaining to them for a long time about what happened to these things. Ah. All right. Well, thanks for coming by to talk to us today. Oh, no problem. It was a pleasure. To read about these stories and more, visit alvincollege.edu.